Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Last week, the Wall Street Journal warned China could be approaching a, quote, Lehman moment as their financial markets implode, referring, of course, to the collapse of Lehman Brothers that set off the 2008 financial crisis. Meanwhile, Nomura Securities, one of Japan's biggest analysts, just cut China's GDP growth again, calling it a, quote, downward spiral. This follows recent GDP cuts of China by Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. Last week, I did a video on China's mounting problems, how over half the Chinese economy is now in distress as manufacturing flatlines and home builders collapse. Note, manufacturing is a quarter of the Chinese economy, about twice what it is in the U.S., while China's home builders actually make up over a quarter of GDP, which is multiples of what they are in the U.S. Those Chinese home builders are now carrying over $5 trillion in debt, which is so much there's no way China has enough to bail them out. They are too big to bail out. The Lehman in question for the journal is Zhongron International Trust, which the journal describes as a, quote, seller of esoteric financial products with $108 billion under management, parked in a black box promising, quote, annual returns up to 15% which sounds fairly ponzi schemey. In fact, Zhongron's Miracle Box just missed four debt payments and Chinese social media users are saying they cannot get their money out. By the way, under Chinese law, those customers are out of luck. Right behind Zhongron awaits a trillion dollar rogues gallery. Evergrande, one of China's biggest home builders with 340 billion in debt, just filed for chapter 15 restructuring in New York. Country Garden, another major home builder with hundreds of billions in debt, is right behind, having just missed debt payments and suspended trading on some of its bonds. In response to the spreading financial wildfire, in recent days, the Chinese government hit the big red panic button. They ordered investment funds to stop selling Chinese stocks, and they ordered major banks to buy the yuan, China's currency, to prop it up after it plunged 5% in a matter of weeks. Chinese stocks have dropped over 10% also in a matter of weeks. In fact, the Hang Seng Index is now lower than it was in October of 2006. So forget the lost decade, China has lost 15 years. So what is next? The Chinese government lies about statistics, yes, even worse than ours, and non-government analysts are saying things are much worse than the government admits. The Wall Street Journal estimates the property slump could be three times worse. In some cities, properties are now falling 20 to 30 percent. More broadly, the Chinese government is one by one pausing the reporting of economic statistics, most ominously the youth unemployment rate, which in the middle of a manufacturing collapse hit a record 21.3% before the statistics went dark. As one analyst put it, Chinese statistics aim to hide bad news, but when people start worrying, quote, the data defeats its own purpose, as in regular Chinese are now assuming the worst and responding accordingly. In the near term, expect the Chinese economy to keep spiraling, defaults to keep mounting, and the Chinese government to keep lying, even as it pounds the panic buttons and makes the data go dark. Last week, I mentioned China could be headed for a Japan-style lost decade of slow growth. Those odds just went up. 
Retailer Target came out with its latest earnings that laid out just what's happening in the economy in our collapsing cities and the enormous price big businesses now paying to appease their woke activists. Target has been taking heat on social media and in its stores over some of its LGBTQ merchandise. Target sales were down 5.5%, missing expectations of 35 decline, and a huge miss to their biggest competitors, Walmart and TJ Maxx, who both recently announced. For the first time in four years, Target's traffic, the number of shoppers and stores, went down. Well, paying shoppers, more on that in a moment. Their earnings held up mostly because a year ago they were liquidating a glut of unsold inventory that is now apparently liquidated. Still, Target's earnings multiple, their stock price per dollar of sales, is now lower than Walmart's, which is quite embarrassing. So what happened? First, Target admitted the Pride Month backlash. They were heavily promoting trans swimwear to kids, pushed sales, quote, sharply lower amid a consumer boycott hitting profits and dropping the stock 22%. That's about $15 billion. I'm guessing they were not making $15 billion on the brave and stunning swimwear, given the CEO promised to tone it down going forward. The other interesting detail was the industrial scale shoplifting. Target reported a loss $1.3 billion in inventory shrink, the corporate name for theft. For perspective, that means about 1 in 20 items sold at Target were actually stolen, which is up over half on the previous year. And the product liberators are getting more violent. Target saw a 120% increase in theft incidents involving violence or threat of violence. Theft is now spreading like wildfire across all of American retail as rogue prosecutors in America's biggest cities coddle their favorites. The price, of course, is paid by the rest of us. Everything that's stolen has to be paid up by those who are actually buying. Kohl's and Foot Locker have also recently warned theft is crushing their bottom line. Home Depot is hiring more security guards. Walmart and Nordstrom's are closing stores, while some cities, of course, are nearly empty, like downtown San Francisco. Big retail is likely to get worse in America. Beyond the anti-consumer marketing and five-finger sales, we have inflation and the economy on the horizon, while pandemic-era savings are running out. The Fed is now estimating that the hundreds of billions built up during the pandemic will be gone by next month. We may see a lot more towns and cities in America turn into retail deserts as customers shift online, where you can pick a retailer that doesn't hate you and where it's harder for violent gangs to liberate the entire store. What's most frustrating about what's happening to America today is that these things are not difficult. Respecting your customer, arresting criminals, even staying out of the way of the economy are not rocket science. The people who are causing this are not stupid, but the incentives push them to outcomes that destroy their organizations, their communities that are destroying the country. American mortgage rates just hit a near 25-year high. What are 7.5% mortgages doing to America? Last week, mortgage rates hit 7.48%, up over a third from a year ago, and the highest since Matchbox 20 dominated the charts. As CNBC put it, this is, quote, crushing affordability for potential home buyers. I mentioned in a recent video how homeowners are stuck because if they sell, they have to rebuy 
with a mortgage that costs double or more. So yes, the house they own went up, but the new house would cost even more. You got to live somewhere. Well, maybe not in California where these streets are paved in RVs, but still. To put it in raw numbers, in mid-2020, mortgage rates were 2.88% and the median house was 323000 meaning a mortgage with 10% down would cost you 1200 a month. Now, with 7.5% mortgages and the median house at 416000 that would cost you $2,600 a month for the median house. This lock-in is inconvenient for empty nesters hoping to downsize and free up the house. Of course, it's also exacerbating the housing shortage for families, with housing inventory now a massive 46% below the historical average. But it is catastrophic for young couples who can't move out of their one bedroom to even start a family if they'll be putting half their salary on the mortgage. What's driving mortgages higher fundamentally is bond prices. After all, borrowed money is the key ingredient in a mortgage. So if bond prices are rising, mortgages are rising almost in lockstep. And bonds are high because markets expect interest rates to stay higher for longer because the economy refuses to die despite the Fed's best attempts. As CNBC put it, quote, investors just aren't seeing the kind of deterioration that they expected. Meanwhile, as I've been mentioning in videos, underlying core inflation has been stuck all year, laughing at Jerome Powell's puny attempts to pretend to take away the punch bowl. Facing these odds, buyers are now flocking to cheaper adjustable rate mortgages whose share jumped three and a half times since 2020. Remember, those were the mortgages that caused the trouble in 2008 because they spiked. Adjustables dull the pain for now, but it also means that if the Fed keeps hiking, or say if they adopt that 3% inflation target, then those mortgages could climb towards 3000 a month. Finally, all of this is hitting rents, which is the main alternative to owning a house. In 2020, the average asking rent in the US was 1600 a month. It has now crossed 2000 That's in three years, 25%. That would be about half the income for a working class family, even with to workers, and it's obviously out of reach for the young who must double up or do without. So what's next? Don't expect much relief on mortgages. Bond prices are saying it'll be years before we see cheap mortgages again. And while home prices are leveling off or falling in the less popular cities, that is starting to turn up again for the cities people want to move to. At some point, stuck families will bite the bullet and do what they got to do, cutting back on other spending to feed a very hungry mortgage, courtesy of the Fed. The mainstream media's campaign to permanently raise inflation is ramping up, with the Wall Street Journal running an op-ed by Harvard professor and former bureaucrat Jason Furman, arguing the Fed should just declare defeat and raise their inflation target by half, going from 2% to 3% per year. The Fed's 2% target is likely not to survive this business cycle. I think that we're likely going to see a 3% target. They'll never tell us ex, ex ante. It'll always be ex post, but it'll be operational before the public is, is actually informed on this. They'll never tell us. 
Of course, 3% is just the appetizer after a suitably gentlemanly pause to be followed by op-eds pimping 4%, 5%, really whatever the people will suffer in silence. The ever-entertaining Paul Krugman chimed in, backing up Furman and giving the Fed some return on investment on those millions in government grants. The journal then followed up the next day with a staff article titled, quote, How Hard Should the Fed Squeeze? Breezily noting how, quote, another strain of thinking says the Fed should accept a rate around 3%. They quoted two former Fed officials pitching just that, along with a former Bank of England official saying, quote, the inflation target is not meant to be an absolute rule. So yes, 3% is in play. They are trying to manufacture the consent before your eyes. By the way, at 2% inflation, if you're 30 years old, a dollar you leave to your kids would be worth 36 cents. At 3%, it's worth 22 cents. Over the weekend, I put out an article arguing inflation has no benefit. It's pure theft. And just last week, I did a video talking about why the Fed aims for 2%. It's the most they can steal. Well, it's the most they can siphon from you and hand to bankers and subsidize federal loans. In that video, I warned they will push for 3%. I did not expect it to come this quick. So we know why they're really doing it, but what's their excuse? What's their sales pitch? Furman kicks off by granting that the people will not like higher inflation, that it has costs. Namely, quote, the time and attention people spend trying to account for how much their current dollars will be worth. You have to be a tenured professor or a former bureaucrat to think the main problem with inflation is tallying up how much you will lose, as opposed to, say, choosing between new shoes for the kids and groceries. He then goes on to paint the utopia we stand to gain. We can shower the banks with cheap money, shower big business with cheap loans, and we can postpone the next recession. Of course, that means squeezing regular Americans and building up a much bigger crash but hopefully one that is postponed until after the 2024 election. So you give the Fed another couple hundred billion. In return, you get a squeezed middle class and a bigger recession, but one that is more election friendly. A couple days ago, I saw a pair of tweets that warmed my heart from Warren Davidson, one of the top Republicans in Congress. Davidson wrote, quote, I want to criminalize designing building, developing, testing, or establishing a CBDC. I don't want anyone to work on a CBDC, not Satoshi, not Consensus, not the Fed, not even my mom. He added, quote, cast the ring into the fire. The reason this sparked Marie Kondo levels of joy is that I had been worried about a Trojan horse effort in Washington to trick Republicans into greenlighting a contractor-built CBDC. I've been talking with congressional offices to end this threat, and at this point, I am very pleased to see a top Republican rejecting that effort. This matters because the only way a CBDC was going to get congressional authority was if lobbyists managed to get both parties on board, if it was bipartisan. Because Democrats are a write-off. They love CBDC since they're now the party of big business and the deep state who both dearly want a CBDC, leaving Republicans as the leverage point. Get them on board and a CBDC was guaranteed. Alas, even if Congress holds firm, this does not mean we're safe because the Fed is building a CBDC without 
congressional approval to pop in as soon as the appropriate crisis arises. Bank failures, recession, take your pick. Last year, the Fed put out a big white paper arguing for a CBDC. And just last month, they rolled out FedNow, which builds up some of the piping that a CBDC would use all without congressional authorization. Note, the Fed can do this because they print their own budget. Literally, they do it in the back room. They are immune from the power of the purse that puts the federal government under the control of our elected representatives in Congress. So, no, the Fed doesn't work for us. We work for them. Still, without congressional authorization, rogue Fed tools are on much weaker constitutional grounds, especially after a big court case last year, EPA versus West Virginia, which said that major policies actually have to be passed by Congress. We've got more cases this year on the question. The one to watch is Loper v. Raimondo on fisheries management. And by the way, I have as much disgust for Congress as anybody, but I have even deeper contempt for the bureaucrats who would ground us up into fertilizer if they could. Moreover, Congress is dysfunctional, meaning almost new laws actually pass outside spending bills, while the deep state is very, very active in auctioning and writing up new laws. So I will take Congress any day of the week. So what's next? Expect the Fed to keep going with their CBDC unless Congress stops them, keeping their proto-CBDC in their back pocket for the next crisis. Meanwhile, keep an eye on the Supremes, whether they continue reigning in the deep state and reestablishing the Constitution's delegation of legislative authority to the people's representatives. Last month on July 4th, I did a video arguing the U.S. Constitution is our superpower. It's what stands between us and the abyss. A lot is riding on the Supremes at this point, including a CBDC, but I am cautiously optimistic. Is the American consumer tapping out? This miracle economy of ours has been held up above all by consumer spending. And now the American consumer is giving up as credit card debt explodes, pandemic era savings run out, and salary growth dramatically cools. In the past couple days, we've seen some terrible numbers out of retail. I did a video last week on Target losing $15 billion in value. Now, Bellwether Footlocker reported sales down 9%, which knocked a third off their stock. Dick's was flat, while Macy's and even BJ's lowered guidance. When even the warehouse clubs are down, it is bad. The American consumer at this point is running on fumes, piling up debt and running down savings as incomes lag inflation by almost 8% in just two years. Exhibit A is credit card balances, which are up almost 40% in those two years and just past the $1 trillion line, which is a record high. Of course, those balances are running at 24% interest. Yes, most mafias charge less, which puts millions of Americans on a treadmill running at this point very fast. Keep in mind, there's another $3.5 trillion in untapped credit lines. So this hole can get a whole lot deeper and that 24% treadmill a whole lot faster. Meanwhile, of course, we've got these student loans, which are set to resume in October. They're over 9% of all consumer debt in the U.S. And by one estimate, they could knock $100 billion off annual consumer spending. To feed all that debt, Americans are now running down their savings at historic rates. The personal savings rate is now under 5%. That's about half what it was pre-pandemic when it was already pathetically low. The Federal Reserve now estimates Americans are running through savings at about $100 billion per month and have already run down $1.9 of the $2.1 trillion that people built up during the pandemic, meaning all those excess savings 
could be gone in a few more months. That has been one of the main things holding back the full recession, keeping it as a rolling recession that hits the working and middle class, but not the wealthy. Surprisingly, even mortgage delinquencies are now soaring. Surprising since most Americans still have a 3 or 4% mortgage. And that is going to get a lot worse with new buyers coming in at 7.5% mortgages, meaning a $2,600 monthly payment for the median house. In effect, the Fed has made America into a two-tier economy where anybody lucky enough to own financial assets or perhaps a house is sitting pretty while the young and working class are wrecked. So boomers are fine, everybody else is screwed. So what is next? Watch for delinquencies and defaults, especially on mortgages. Both were driven down artificially during the pandemic by trillions in government handouts and government-mandated forbearance, but both are now rising fast and have already given back the entire pandemic dip. As for the broader economy, evaporating savings and snowballing debt mean that rolling recession will keep spreading. Jerome Powell's annual Jackson Hole Rampage just ended his once a year speech where he emerges from his den and if he sees his shadow, we get rate hikes for another year. This time around, Powell did see his shadow promising higher rates for longer in a hawkish speech, lamenting that the Fed has been singularly unsuccessful at making you lose your job, so they will have to keep at it. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. As is often the case, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. Jerome's speech waxed lyrical about, quote, navigating by these stars under cloudy skies, not a joke. But in short, he said he'll hold rates at a restrictive level and that he's prepared to keep hiking until he sees some, quote, softening in the labor market. In other words, until he's put millions more Americans out of work or at least cut their wages to an appropriate level for a plebe. Why so dark? Because Powell admitted that the progress on inflation so far has been one-offs. Supply chains going from jammed to empty, the world routing around Russia's war, and oil prices that always fall in recessions. Meanwhile, core inflation, the one that the Fed actually pays attention to, has been stuck above 4% for 32 months now. Because Jerome is unwilling to confront the actual cause of our inflation, which is out-of-control federal spending. So instead, he has to soften that labor market to earn his keep. Happily, Jerome did brush off calls to raise the Fed's inflation target to 3%, saying, quote, 2% is and will remain our target. So the New York Times and especially Paul Krugman have a lot more work to do selling that one. With Jerome's cloudy skies in the mix, financial markets are now predicting yet more hikes this year, at best followed by a very long pause, where the Fed doesn't even begin to cut until at least June of 2024, which is very handy for the upcoming election. That means those 7.5% mortgages and $2,600 monthly payments, now closer to $2,700, are here to stay. So what's next? So far, the economy has held up to a surprising degree, thanks to pandemic-era excess savings and pent-up demand for housing and cars. Those are the two big-ticket items for most consumers, but now all three are petering out. I recently did a video on excess savings draining away, and now the other two are on the chopping block. 
Moreover, the clock is ticking. In recent videos, I've mentioned how interest rate hikes typically run on an 18-month lag, as in it takes time to work through the economy since companies and families still have old, cheap debt that they're running through. In fact, the Fed only got rates to a restrictive level literally two months ago. So it's still very early to even be seeing the kind of financial stresses we're already seeing. At this point, it does not look like the Fed's going to let up. That's what Powell is promising, meaning that clock is ticking away. Indeed, going by Powell's tone today, it sounds like, if anything, we may actually get more rate hikes, along with even more softening of those labor markets, the worst case being a replay of that 1970s nightmare of twin peak inflation, which is certainly playing on loop at the Fed's evil lair in Washington. In short, expect more pain from a floundering Fed. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.